0: Well, thanks Keith. Uh, If you do have a journal, you can turn to page 24 and that has a space uh, for you to take notes. You'll also notice on uh, the right-hand side there is an unlined section and that's a place for you to doodle and write about what you're going to do later on today if things get a little bit boring for you at any time during the message. So you have two pages to fill there if uh, if you would like to. Uh, Well, I uh, have a confession for you this morning. It's not going to surprise any of you who know me well, uh, and that is that I am not always great at finishing things that I start. I know it's hard to believe, personality-wise and temperament-wise, that that's the case. You can ask my wife, Meg. I will start in the kitchen. I will start cooking something, and then I'll get enamored with something else going on somewhere else in the house, and I'll just leave in the middle of this and the kitchen will be a total disaster and she's like what were you attempting to do here like "Uh, i'm not sure i got about halfway through and then i got a little bit bored with it and gave up or uh watching tv together Uh, we'll be watching a show and i'll get i'll think to myself i wonder if there's a better show on another channel And so I'll just begin to start kind of flicking through the channel. We have one of these TVs you can see. You can kind of watch your existing show while you're flicking through new shows to see. So I never actually end up watching a solid 30 minutes of anything because I'm kind of thinking there's always something better on another channel and watch half of this and half of that. Uh, So sometimes the same kind of thing can happen in preaching. So, for example, in 2009, we started a series in the book of Acts entitled We Are All Witnesses. But did we finish it? No, we did not finish it. We got to the end of the summer, and then we moved into a series in Philippians, but you should all thank God for Pastor Keith, because he writes these kinds of things down. And when Keith gets into a project, he's tenacious, like he's actually going to finish it off, and he's going to stick with it. So it was not a surprise to me at all when we were away together for one of our days of prayer, and when we do our planning for the teaching series, and he pulls out a sheet of paper, and he says, so... When are we going to finish the book of Acts? And of course, it's 2009, like that was like two and a half years ago. I don't even remember we were in the book of Acts. Like, no, no, we started, we made it till chapter 12, end of chapter 12. So when are we going to kind of go through that? And the first half of the book of Acts focuses on mission in a very monocultural environment in Jewish Jerusalem in the early part of the first century. But we learn in the book of Acts that God's intention, his heart, has always been for the nations. Even in our momentum journaling this last week, we're reading in Matthew, and it talks about God saying, here's my servant, I have put my spirit on him, he will declare justice to the nations. And in the Psalms that we've been reading over the last number of weeks going through Christmas, it's always referencing what God is doing in the world and in the nations. And I was struck again how frequently that God references what he's doing among the nations of the world. And it's the reason why one of our values here at Jericho Ridge is global service, global and local service. It's why we have a team going to Guatemala in March, March 10th to 17th, to distribute wheelchairs. It's why uh, Andrew and Colleen are flying back to Nepal this month and working there. It's why Steph is working in South Asia. It's why we have Jung Hoon and Pearl working on literacy and Bible translation work in South Asia, in East Asia. It's why the lungs are headed to Asia in February uh, for a vision trip to see where God's leading them to serve among people that don't have a gospel witness in Asia and with MB Mission. So, why Lindsay Schachter right now is in Haiti. She'll be there over the second year anniversary of the earthquake, and she's there with a team working with them and trying to uh, bring hope to the lives of the Haitian people. Gary uh, is in India right now working in Kolkata with a heart for mission. And Peter works in Tanzania with children and people with albinism. So this is a place that we share God's heart for what he's doing in the world, and there's a collective sense that this is a strategic time for us as a church family, as a community, to be alive in 2012 to have the opportunities that God has given to us to be about partnering with God in His work in the world. Hence, the title of our series for January and February. Now is the time, and that fishing metaphor that you see coming through in the picture, uh, which is associated with Jesus' words to His followers in Mark chapter one, verse 17. And he says to them, come with me. I will make you a new kind of fisherman. I'll make a new kind of fisherman out of you. I will show you how to catch men and women instead of perch and bass. And so as we celebrate all that God is doing in the world and our partnership with him, what we sometimes forget about when we emphasize all of those things is that in our culture too, our culture is also desperately in need of a gospel witness. We are also called actively to be locally fishing for people. And the principles that we apply to cross-cultural ministry and mission also are very pertinent to our life and our work and your life and work and mission right here in Surrey and Langley. Because I would suggest to you that in our day and time, Any conversation about Jesus, about his life, about the contents of scripture and the gospel, any conversation with somebody about those issues is a cross-cultural conversation. In our world today, when Danny Ferguson and the team from YFC go across the parking lot to Ari Mountain High School and offer hot chocolate to kids and uh, get involved in their lives in a listening ear, That's cross-cultural ministry. When uh, Mike, when we budget for staff dollars for Mike Olinick and and encourage and tell him, Mike, it's a part of your job not just to spend time with church kids, but you need to be up in the high school in Walnut Grove listening to what's going on in kids' lives and extending a hand of friendship to them and hope, that's cross-cultural ministry Really? In the small neighborhood where we live, we are aware of nine different languages that are spoken in homes as mother tongues. It's a cross-cultural encounter when we talk to our neighbors. And right here in our, in our city and in our day and time in your workplace in Willoughby, when you talk to people about issues of faith, that's a cross-cultural encounter. And so that's why I'm excited about the second half of the book of Acts, because it is full of examples and opportunities about crossing cultural barriers in mission about the message of Jesus, not only globally, but also right here in our families and in our schools and workplaces and backyards. So let me give you a little preview of what it is that we're going to be emphasizing as we go through the second half of the book of Acts from chapter 13 to chapter 28 uh, in January and February. The first thing that that we're going to learn and see is about the challenges and the joys of cross-cultural mission that God has called us to as individuals and as a church family. Because the people fishing business is a tough business. It is in our day. It was in the first century as well. And we shouldn't pretend otherwise. But we also need to remind ourselves every now and then of the fact that when God gets a hold of a life and changes a person's heart and their orientation towards God and towards the world. There's a joy and a sweetness in that transformation that can't be replicated, but that certainly needs to be shared. And so when your life has been transformed by Jesus, there's joys, there's also challenges that come with the mission that he's given to us. The second thing we're going to see in in Acts is we're going to see the urgency of mission that we are called to. And I want to share with you some of what drives the heart behind this teaching series and what keeps me up at night with a nagging suspicion is that in some ways we may be less, we may have a, our urgency level may have declined over the last seven and a half years from when we started meeting together in a high school cafeteria across the parking lot at Ari Mountain Secondary School. In those days around Jericho, there was an urgency around mission. And sometimes, you know, that ebbs and flows a little bit. And so we want to just take a a blowtorch to this value of seeing people reached with the message of Jesus and kind of heat that up a little bit in its urgency around it. So challenges and joys, urgency of mission. We're going to focus on the declaration of what it is that God is doing in the world, not solely on decision. And I'll explain a little bit more what this means as we go throughout the series, but for now don't hear what I'm not saying. Certainly not uh, minimizing the importance of a person making a decision when it comes to saving face in faith in Jesus. But sometimes what's happened in the evangelical world over the last 50 years or so is that decision has become the only metric that is utilized. And in the book of Acts, if you look at what they do with the gospel, they see themselves as declarers and embodiers of Jesus' message. They are not arm twisters or technique masters in any way. The focus in the book of Acts is on spirit-led conversations and declaration of God's worth and his work in the world. It is not on dumping prefabricated content on people. And so we're going to talk about this as we go through this series And that's why this next one is important because the way in which they do this in the book of Acts is quite different than what we have maybe done in the last number of years as evangelicals. And that is the emphasis in the book of Acts is on sharing God's story and also on sharing your story. And so we're going to learn together how to share your story. And I have to be honest with you that this is a little bit of a learning curve for all of us. Because one of our dreams this year that we've identified as a goal for us as a church family is that we want to see every person who's connected with Jericho Ridge learn how to share a short story of what God is doing in your life in 2012. Everybody, just learn how to talk just a little bit about what God is doing in your life in 2012. We're going to help you on this one. There'll be training and support, and storytelling success parties, but be thinking and praying even now about what that might look like for you to be sharing your story and opportunities that God is going to give you to do that throughout the course of this year. All right, so that's what we're going to see as we go through the book of Acts. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles, which you now have on your phones, and, and so I will assume that you are not texting your friends. I'll assume that you're reading the Scriptures when you get your phones out. That uh, Turn with me to Acts chapter. Fifteen. And one thing to remember about the book of Acts is that Acts is basically, it's like a travel log with a bunch of speeches interspersed throughout it. And so when we go through the second half of the book of Acts, we're going to focus more on the speeches, uh, but it does help to understand the travel log as an integrated part of the story and as the spread of the gospel in uh, in the world and in our world today. So if you'll bear with me for a few minutes, we're going to rewind the tape in the book of Acts uh, to chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we first meet a guy by the name of Saul, or Paul, as he becomes known later. And this is a guy who is highly trained in Jewish law and religious cultural practices. And the whole rest of the book of Acts is going to revolve mostly around his adventures and what ends up happening to him. And so this guy, Paul, is his job description, his mission in life, when we first meet him in uh, chapter 8, is that basically he has a mandate from a religious community. They pay his full-time salary, and they give him all the resources that he needs to go around persecuting Christians, dragging them out of their homes, hauling them off to jail, and saying, you know what, you guys are breaking the law by meeting together in this way. That's it, you're done you know, in jail with you. This is his job description and his mission in life. He's very, very passionate about this. As we forward through the book of Acts, we learn that an amazing thing happens to him because God has a different plan for his life. And so he actually has an incredible and supernatural encounter as he's on one of these trips to go and drag Christians off to jail. He has an encounter with God and he experiences God personally and God totally transforms his life and he has this supernatural conversion experience and he has to begin unlearning some of the stuff that he thought was true about God and about religion and all of those things that he'd grown up knowing for all of his life and it's a tough road for him it takes him a couple of years to get this all sorted out which isn't reflected in the travel log in the book of acts we learn that from his writings later on and maybe that's you. Maybe you're still trying to figure out what all of this business about God is all about. And if you're on that journey, then we're here to partner with you in that. Don't feel, don't feel rushed or pressured. It took this guy a couple of years to get this thing sorted out and to integrate his life experiences and his previous life experiences with what he knew to be true now of his faith in Jesus. And so when we get to Acts chapter 13 which is where Keith's notes say that we left off in the summer of 2009, and his notes are much more reliable than my notes, we find that Paul is in a place called Syrian Antioch, and this becomes the first century center of mission for the local church. And so as the chapter opens in chapter 13, the church is gathered together for prayer and for fasting, and God says to them, listen, I want you to set apart this guy Paul and his buddy Barnabas, and I want you to send them off in mission. And so off they go. They travel by boat to the island of Cyprus, and then they go to Antioch and Pisidia and various other places. You can see it on the map up there. And they experience opposition as they begin to tell people about Jesus, as they call people to saving faith in Jesus. They recount the story of his life, his death, his resurrection. They get uh, opposition from some predictable places, from sorcerers uh, on Cyprus, They get opposition from some very pious and religious people. They get opposition from uh, some Jewish leaders in chapter 13, verses 50. And the Jewish leaders stir up the real power brokers in the town, the influential women of the city. And so then they get them all kicked out of that particular city. So eventually, they've kind of gone through this little travel experience. They've gone back and visited a few other places. They're working on starting faith communities in these places. And then they come back to Antioch, Syria, and they have, like, their own little version of Mission Fest where they get to tell about all the stuff that's going on uh, in, in God's world and what's going on out there. So they have this Missions Fest, and everybody's excited. There's lots of high fives. They're like, this is awesome. God's doing really cool stuff. And then all of a sudden, the the kind of bottom falls out of the whole thing, and that's in Chapter 15. And look with me at Acts Chapter 15 starting in Verse 1. Verse 1 in Acts 15 says, When Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch in Syria, some men from Judea arrived, and they began to teach the believers that unless you're circumcised, as is required in the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided, this was such a big deal, that they were going to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some of the local believers, and they were going to talk to the apostles and the elders about this question. So Paul and Barney are back from their cross-cultural encounter, uh, and they're all excited about all the things that God has been doing in the world and, and seeing all kinds of different people with different cultural backgrounds come to faith. And then they get back to their hometown, and suddenly there's these people that are saying, no, 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 you have to follow the old customs and old ways of doing things. And Paul and Barnabas say, no way. That's not what we've been out telling people. That's not what we understand the life of Jesus to be about. But this becomes, as our friends to the South like to say in their political circles, this becomes a wedge issue. And this is actually so significant that this issue defines the landscape of conversation and theological reflection for almost the whole rest of the New Testament. And frankly, in our day, it's a little bit hard for us to understand and wrap our mind around the significance of this issue. But lest you think that this is not a big deal at all, and we think, well, I don't know why they're making such a, uh, why they're so hyper about this stuff on both sides of the issue, let me rephrase the question for you. The question that is Driving this conversation is one that's not foreign to people that work in cross-cultural work today, and that is this. How many barriers, how many cultural barriers should a person have to cross in order to come to saving faith? How many cultural barriers should a person have to cross in order to come to saving faith? Now, we might be more familiar with in our more recent history of this conversation being played out in international context. So, for example, we can probably think of colonial uh, mission expressions or even grievous ones here in our own country's history where, where with our First Nations, where people were required to become Western or British or white or suburban middle class in order to be Christians. And it can be quite easy to look at those kinds of instances with moral superiority and say that is outrageous and we would be certainly justified in doing so those barriers we would say they shouldn't exist people shouldn't have to jump through those kind of hoops to come to faith in Christ but let's not kid ourselves friends the, the barriers that exist to people coming to faith still happen today There are still barriers to people coming to faith. Uh, Let's brainstorm together a little bit about what might be some barriers that you think would prevent someone from coming to faith in our day today. Shout them out. Yeah, for sure. For sure, the issue of homosexuality has become such a significant flashpoint. We've become known for all the things we stand against, and that's become representative in some ways. Yeah, so our, our treatment of those who are identified as homosexual has certainly become an issue that has prevented many people. Think If that's what Christians stand for, I don't know if I want to be a part of that. group. What else? Think of some issues. Religious upbringing, absolutely. How can that be a barrier to someone coming to faith? Sorry, jokes about Veggie Tales. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the subcultural piece—that's a very true. You can actually grow up in a particular. To speak to Mike's issue, religious upbringing can be a barrier for you to coming to authentic faith because you grow up in this subculture whereby it seems like it's understood that everybody is a Christian. And that actually is the whole genesis of our denomination 150 years ago, where people said, do you know what? Has anybody actually made a personal profession of faith? Or are we just a bunch of cultural people that grow up in a church and then figure to ourselves, well, since I grew up in a church, then I must be a Christian. Yeah, what else? What's another barrier that you can think of? Justice, issues of justice. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Hypocrisy, absolutely. Yeah. What else? Irrelevance. Yeah, the church has been busy, very busy, and poured insane amounts of resources into answering questions that nobody's asking, or that they were asking years ago, and they got a decent answer to, and we just keep recycling that answer for them, hoping that maybe they pick it up again. Yeah, there are there are all kinds of barriers that exist to people coming to faith. I can remember even simple ones. I can remember when we were on holidays 2 years ago, we were down in Florida. And I went to the one of the more prominent churches in a particular city. And you know, it's Florida, it's the summertime, it's hot. So I'm wearing shorts and I thought, well, you know, there's the the average age in this community is quite a bit older than I am. So I should probably at least put on a collared shirt if I'm going to go to church. So I found a nice polo shirt. You know, I got it on. I even decided I was not going to wear my beach sandals. I was going to put on my nice sandals and go to church. So I thought, hey, this is great. And I drive up to this church, and the place is like right out of a postcard. It's got a white steeple. It's red brick building, you know, all, this, all of these things. So... Uh, I get inside, and I find my seat, and I see they have a big choir with massive robes. And i thought well, that's kind of interesting. It'll be fun. And then I notice about this point before things have kind of got underway that all the people around me are kind of looking at me a little bit differently. And then it dawns on me they all have suits and ties on, and, like, they are dressed to the nines. And the kids all have, like, sweater vests before sweater vests were cool, and uh, they, like... Everybody is really, really dressed up. And uh, I am think to myself, well, I begin to feel a little bit uncomfortable. And, and uh, people begin to kind of, you know, say things like, You're new here, aren't you? (laughs) Like, you're not from around here, are you? And I'm thinking, you know what, though? This is kind of weird because all through the whole week, this is what you people in Florida wear. You wear shorts and, like, collared shirts. And then suddenly Sunday morning comes and some switch flips in your mind and you all dress up and get in suits and ties and go places. This is really weird. You're not catching any of this? And I thought, you know, the weirder place, I feel uncomfortable here. And this is a church, and I'm a pastor. And I feel uncomfortable in this church. And I thought, you know what? I didn't know that the subcultural norm here was that you were all going to get dressed up in suits and ties. And I'm getting an unspoken message. And the unspoken message that, at least as I interpreted it, was, young man, if you would like to come to this church, then you had better get dressed up next time. If you would like to be a part of our faith community, there are some standards to which you need to adhere And there's some barriers that I needed to cross. Maybe you've had an experience like that. It could be about something as insignificant as how you dressed when you walked in or something as significant as the way in which we as Christians have behaved over the last number of centuries. Suddenly, without warning, you can find yourself up against a barrier that you somehow feel you need to cross in order to find a place of belonging in a faith community. And that is really the issue that's going on here in the early church. Because of the Jewish roots and the history and the ethos, there were those who were saying very, very strongly, listen, if you want to get to Jesus, you have to go through all of the stuff we had had to go through for centuries. You have to become Jewish. You have to follow these Jewish customs, ancient Jewish religious practices as laid out in the Law of Moses. And then and only then will we let you into God's family because it's our job to be gatekeepers around here. And Paul and Barnabas are so ticked off by this, they begin to argue with these people. And it gets so heated that they finally decide, you know what, we can't come to a resolution. We're going to have to go down to the apostles who knew Jesus themselves. We're going to have to go to the elders in Jerusalem and discuss this matter further. So keep reading. And these verses won't come up on the side screen. So follow along in your Bibles with me as we read in Acts 15, verses 4 through 6. So the church sends these delegates down. Verse 4, it says, When they arrived in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas and Paul uh, were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders, and they reported on everything that God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. So the core issue here, again, is that this group wants to put a historical cultural overlay onto the gospel, the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, which, if I can be blunt and frank but not gory, is the sign of circumcision. So uh, if I was Paul, I think the better way to have resolved this issue if I was Paul would have said, listen. (laughs) Do you want people to become followers of Jesus or not? I mean, circumcision, guys. It hurts enough when you get circumcised as a baby. You really want to make this the entrance ticket for grown adults? Like, you really want to limit your conversion rate, don't you? That's probably how I would have approached the issue. To me, I would have just said, this is ridiculous. Like, can we not solve this right here and now? But this was, this was a cultural issue that was very near and dear to those who were Jewish and had this background. And so Jewish Pharisees, the, it's all that they could picture. They, they could not conceptualize of somebody coming to faith and understanding who God was without going through those kinds of cultural experiences. If you didn't, weren't Jewish, you, you at least had to become Jewish in their mind, in their lifestyle to get into the club. But just so we don't get smug and think to ourselves, whew, I'm so glad we don't do anything as stupid as that at Jericho. Like, there's lots of things, like, we've already brainstormed about that can be potential barriers that are cultural overlays that can prevent people from coming to saving faith. And so what barriers might potentially exist a person coming to saving faith? We've named a lot of them already. Some of the possible barriers are things like the history of Christianity the perception that people have, like Nigel said, or the experience that people have with Christians. If you've met a Christian and their life is in no way transformed by Jesus, you think, do I really, do I really want to get involved with that? There's other things. There might be things that we do here at Jericho. Our, our ethos, our style, the language that we use, the cultural composition of people here, these might be potential barriers for people coming to faith people's past or present hurts people feeling like they don't belong i mean we could there are tons and tons of things that we- The question that strikes me about Acts chapter 15 is if these are potential barriers to people coming to faith, whose job is it to break down those barriers? Is it the expectation, is it the job of the person who is on the outside or on the receiving end of that to work as hard as they can to break those down? should it not be those who are on the inside, so to speak, who work hard to break down those barriers? And I want to suggest to you, and some of you are wondering when in the world we would get to the title of the message today, and that is when it comes to a cultural barrier to someone coming to saving faith in Jesus, our job is to break it down. Our role and responsibility is is to identify them and to say, what can I do to get rid of or minimize that barrier? Look at Peter's response in Acts chapter 15, verse 7 to 11. Peter gets involved in the conversation. After a long discussion, Peter stands. He addresses them as says, Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that, frankly, neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? we believe that we are all saved in the same way by the undeserved grace of our Lord Jesus. Peter says, you want to know how I know that God is in this whole deal that Paul and Barnabas have been talking with us about? You want to know how I know that it's important for us to begin to rip down some of these barriers? Because this is God's business, not my business. God's business, verse 8, is changing hearts and lives. God knows people's hearts. And furthermore, Peter says, God has been active in drawing those who are non-Jewish and bringing them to faith. And God ratified this by giving them the most precious gift that he could give. He gave them himself. He gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is just what he gave to those who were Jewish and who came to faith in Acts chapter 2. And I love Peter's closing argument. He says, you know what? We are all saved in the same way, by the undeserved grace of God. Peter says to them, what are we arguing about here? This is the real issue. This is, it, it's not a cultural issue. This is a spiritual issue. Does God want people to come into his family or not? God is at work. He's doing something, Peter says, Supernatural. And so God has his critics, and they're trying to out-God God. They're sitting back and looking at this going, nah, I don't think so. I can't get excited about that. That doesn't seem like God to me. I wouldn't do it that way if I was God. But friends, we don't miss the liberating and central truth of the gospel that everyone comes into God's family by the same door. There is no other way. The sign above that door is grace. You don't get in by what you do. There are no other entrance points. There are no entrance barriers or other requirements because of what God did, because Jesus paid for it all when he died on the cross, when he rose again, when he ascended into heaven and broke the power and the hold that sin and guilt have on your life and mine. And to imagine that you are going to approach God in any other way, religious background, otherwise, is just ludicrous because it's so clear that we approach God only on the merits of what he has done and his grace. To think that you have to do stuff or that you have to culturally become who you are not in order to get God to like you is preposterous. And Peter reminds everybody, he says, we are all saved in the same way by the undeserved grace of our Lord Jesus. But this is such a big shift for those who grew up with another orientation culturally that they they have difficulty getting their minds around this and working it out. So Paul and Barnabas recount their experiences of the work of God in the lives of non-Jews, and Peter does the same, and then James stands up, and he roots this in the Old Testament scriptures, and he reminds his audience of God's heart for all peoples and all nations. He goes on to quote from the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Amos, and in verse 17 he says, Listen, This has been God's plan all along, that the rest of humanity, not just Jews, would seek the Lord, including the Gentiles and all those whom I have called to be mine. And the amazing and wonderful thing is that this is still happening in our day and time today. All around us, all around our world and here in our neighborhoods, in your workplaces and environments, people are still seeking after God. God is still at work calling people to himself all around us. And friends, my heart is stirred up, and the hearts of our leadership team is stirred up to say, if God is at work, then now is the time for us to partner with him. If he is so active in this, and in this new year, as we move into this, this is game time. You listen to the songs that we sang earlier, declaring salvation is near, salvation is here. God is still turning hearts towards Himself And lives toward himself and he's inviting you and I to partner with him in that process of redemption and so our role just like the role of those people in Acts chapter 15 is very simple James says it right in verse 19 look with me in verse 19 he says our role our role is not to make it difficult for people who are seeking God and who want to turn towards him that's our role we are barrier busters from the inside out. People are seeking God. People desire to turn towards God. And our job is just not to make it difficult for them to do that. As you read through the conclusion to this story, the decision that comes out in the letter that they write is let's remove as many barriers as possible so that as many people can come to saving faith as possible. And their decision is to instruct both Jews and Gentiles in this new family To not eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. This is an allegiance issue. Do you worship the one God or something else? To abstain from sex outside of the boundaries of marriage. This is an ethical issue. And then not to eat the blood, not to eat blood, or the meat of animals that have been strangled. Sounds pretty fair to me. (laughs) So in chapter 15, verse 1, we begin the chapter with the barriers very, very, very high. The entrance requirement, if you want to come to faith, is really steep. And we end the chapter with it really really low and really sensible the barriers of cultural preference and overlay have been removed so that those who are actively seeking god can turn towards him and the result if you read at the end of the chapter is joy there's an increased passion for mission that happens there's an increased faith and a sense that from those that are far off that newcomers Uh, is a time to welcome them, and that now is the time for saving faith. And that God is at work turning the hearts and lives of those who are seeking him towards him. And I don't know, maybe that describes you here in this place today. Maybe you're seeking, maybe you're asking questions about God, asking what it means for you. What are the implications to be a part of his family? And I want to remind you of of Peter's simple words in Acts chapter 15, verse 11. We are all saved in the same way, by receiving the grace that is offered to us in Jesus. And that simply means you say yes to God in the work of his son Jesus on the cross. And so don't leave here today, if that's you, don't leave here today without coming and talking to me about that decision. Don't leave here today without processing that a little bit more and taking the next step on your journey of faith. And during our response time, I'll be at the back, and I want you to come and talk to me, and we can pray together about questions that you have and talk and dialogue and set up a time to have coffee together. You can talk to the friend who brought you. If you're a person who has been a part of God's family, then the response for us is also clear. The question we want to ask ourselves is, are there any personal barriers that need to be torn down in your life in 2012. might be that you have a personal preference in terms of how someone ought to think about God or behave or live. We might have to unlearn some of that in 2012. might have to make some mental adjustments about people who are seeking God. Might be that you need to put yourself in a new environment in 2012 in order to push beyond or outside of the comfort zone. Might be that fear is a huge barrier holding you back from saying anything about your relationship with Jesus. I want you to spend some time this week with God in solitude and silence, asking Him, God, are there any barriers in my life that you need to address? Are there perception issues that I have about how people come? Or who is eligible to come to God? And ask God to tear those down in your life. Another part of our response is also a corporate response. Are there any of those barriers that you listed or that you can think of that God might be uniquely calling and equipping us to tear down as a church family in 2012? Are there things that we say or that we do that we need to get rid of? Are there things that we don't say or that we don't do that we need to begin to do in order for people who are seeking God and Willoughby and Clayton to find him. Maybe there's things that we need to repent of corporately. Now is the time. It's the start of a new year. Maybe we've lost our first love for mission and begun to emphasize other things. Now is the time to come back, to tear down that wall and to remind ourselves that our primary role is to participate with God in his mission of changing hearts and lives. I'm going to ask the worship and song team if they would come, and we're going to respond with some songs that speak to this and invite God to continue to lead us in this. I'm going to invite you to stand with me, and we're going to pray together, and I'm going to pray through our mission statement as a church and ask God that he would continue to stir these things up in our hearts and our lives. Would you stand with me, and I'll pray. God, our desire and our heart is to be people who love you, who love those around us, who listen to you, who listen to those around us. And so today in this place, Father, if there is anything that we have set up as a barrier or anything that uh, we perceive as a barrier, Father, I pray that you would speak to us about tearing it down. We want to be people who listen. And who love you. And who love our neighbors. God you have called us to be a people who extend your hope and your reconciliation to our community. And so if there are barriers in our heart, maybe fear is keeping us from doing that individually and corporately. God would you tear that down this morning. Father we want to be people who are available to you to rip down barriers make it easy for people who are searching for you to find you in all of our lives, all of the time. And so our expression and song, Father, is an invitation for you, Holy Spirit, to come convict us where it's necessary, encourage and strengthen us where it's necessary. We commit to saying yes to you in obedience to doing the things that you call us to do and to going where you lead us. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. Let's sing together.